4 of Nehemiah for us last week, we saw that even then with the, the enemy coming against him, he was able to say, okay, half our men, they're going to be, keep on building the wall. Uh, the other half are going to defend us. Just nothing would take away Nehemiah's focus on completing the task that had set, been set before him. Like Nehemiah, a fellow called Vernon Wayne Howell wanted to make a difference. He longed to make a difference. He was born in 1959 and he knew the scriptures very well. He actually um, started to associate with a team that was a, a breakaway group from a mainstream Seventh-day Adventist church over in the United States. And he loved the account of the Jews being liberated from Babylon. He loved the account of Cyrus being the means by which they were delivered. And he too wanted to be a deliverer of people. And so he changed his name from Vernon to David because he wanted to signify that he was a spiritual descendant of King David. And he's changed his name from Hal to Koresh. Koresh being the Hebrew derivative of the name Cyrus. Because like King Cyrus, he wanted to be a liberator of people. And the greatest fear that Koresh instilled in his followers were the fear of the Babylonians. Babylonians in Koresh speak were the outsiders. They were the government agents, the non-believers. And Koresh preached about and constantly prepared his little community for the final battle. The Branch Davidians, as they were called, including children, were being readied for the imminent end of the world. I mean, this is the fascinating account of this group that lived at Mount Carmel, Waco, Texas, and tragically ended with the, what they was called the, the Waco Massacre, in which 76 people, including uh, women and children, lost their lives. And if you haven't seen that mini-series, I know some here have, um, Tim uh, uh, Nico alerted me to the fact there was a mini-series some uh, two years ago and I had a look at that. I think it's compulsory viewing for any Christian to have a look at. The way people can be so easily deluded around God's word. We need to be very careful about that. So inside this community, Koresh prepared his community to fight the outside Babylonians and their preparation included a whole lot of military skills, interrupted sleep, one-on-one -on -one fighting, and if the children did not want to participate or were not vicious enough in their preparation, they were beaten. They were beaten to toughen them up. And even the youngest were taught how to handle guns. And the rationale was that these unbelievers, these Babylonians were going to come. And they're going to come and kill everybody. But after this, they would all go up to heaven, they'd be reunited as a family, and Koresh, their god, would return to earth to smite all the enemies. And the fear of those outside this Waco community permeated everything they did inside. They were so worried about the outside. And yet inside, inside the compound, children lived in fear. Even babies were not immune. There was strict physical discipline to make sure they would stay in the light. Koresh maintained an iron grip he controlled everything and he would undermine any relationship that would seek to reduce his impact on the community. And for the girls, there was a knowledge that ultimately they would become a bride of David. And girls as young as 10 
were groomed to become the sexual partners of Koresh in their later years. His whole plan was to father 24 children out of that community who would represent the 24 elders seated around the Great White Throne. A fascinating account. So much for the enemy outside the walls. The greatest harm to the Waco community was coming from within. And I think sometimes we as churches can view our greatest enemy as being outside. But I think the story of Waco, like the story of Nehemiah, like the experience of political parties with their internal wrangling for leadership struggles, like the Royal Commission into Institutional Child Abuse and Abuse of Seniors, can often show us that the dangers within a community are greater than those outside. Was it any wonder that Jesus said, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and every city or household divided against itself will not stand? And that's why the way that we live together is of such importance. Where we left chapter 4 last week, uh, the Jews seemed to be powering along. I mean, the war was half completed and they appeared so united, so united in fact that... Um, as, uh, as Murray preached about, half were building the wall, half were uh, taking on the enemy to make sure that nothing took their focus off the mission. And now we come to Nehemiah chapter 5 and we see a community starting to self-destruct. There were some, some issues here that needed to be dealt with, some real problems that could have got way out of hand had they not been brought out in the open. So what had happened? Well, verse... Uh, Chapter 5, verse 7, gives us an insight into the background historically. We know that uh, Nehemiah, when he came um, from Babylon uh, back over into uh, Jerusalem, he went around the city by night. He obviously did a lot of research. And what he found at that time was that many of the Jewish people were indebted to the pagan communities, the non-Jewish communities around. They had sold their children into slavery. And so rather than being a people who reflected God's plan for them to be this special people that were brought together and be a light to the rest of the world, they were oppressed. And so it would appear from verse 8 that Nehemiah dipped into his own financial resources or perhaps into the financial resources that Cyrus had blessed him in before he left. And he bought the Jewish people back from the Gentiles. So they really could be the people of God. He had paid for their freedom. So that they, were the children, they were free people rather than slaves of the pagan rich. So the people were redeemed and they knew what freedom was like. And we can see that in uh, verse 8a. It says, as far as possible, we have brought our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. We have brought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. So here's this picture of these people who were serving foreign and pagan um, owners being brought back, not brought back, but brought back into their, their freedom. But then Nehemiah hears something that really makes him see, see red. Here's a famine in the land and some of the Jews can't afford grain and that's bad enough. Then they can't afford the king's taxes to pay the taxes on their land. And so they mortgage their fields to buy grain and to buy land. And we know that that's a bad idea. It's bad enough um, 
you know, when we've got the burden of servicing a mortgage on an appreciating asset. But borrowing money to pay for food and for taxes is going down a one-way street. And it did. They couldn't pay the loans. So they had to sell their children into slavery. And they're straight back into this cycle of poverty again. And all that's bad enough. But what is making Nehemiah particularly angry is that the people ripping off the Jews with the high interest payments were their own fellow Jews. They weren't outside people. These were people within their own number. And the last part of verse 8 gives us an insight into what Nehemiah reads into their intent. So he says, now you're selling your own people. Only let them be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So these rich Jewish people were pretty good entrepreneurs. They were saying to themselves, oh, this is a pretty good look. Nehemiah seems to have plenty of money. And these people, our own people, need money for their food. So we'll lend the money to their food for their food and we'll keep loading them up with as much credit as they want and we will charge them a good amount of interest, mind you. And we know that our loan is pretty secure because Nehemiah has been walking around wanting to free everyone, liberate everyone, make sure they're bought back, they're living as free people. And so Nehemiah thinks, they're using me. Right? This is a whole look. What are they doing that for? No wonder he was angry. And perhaps a different type of leader would have walked away, thrown his hands up in the air and said, no wonder the walls of Jerusalem haven't been built for so long. I might as well just head back, go back to, um, to Cyrus and take up my job again as a cupbearer. But he knew there was a bigger picture at stake. There was a bigger mission and we'll find that over the coming years. This is not just about building a wall. This is about building a people together where people could come and recognise that they were one, that God had a plan and purpose for them. And so what did he do? He listened to the complaints and that's always a good place to start. And listen to the complaints about the famine, and about the way the wealthy were oppressing the poorer brothers. And he knew that this trust in this community had to be dealt with and it had to be put right. Because this community was now at its most vulnerable. The unity they had in building the wall wasn't a reflection of the way they lived together. And so how did, how did he confront that? Well, he did three things. He took time to consider his position. Now, he was really angry. We need to remember that anger is not a sin. Our anger may lead us to sin, but being angry about something is not sin. There is such a thing as righteous anger, and Nehemiah had it. And so rather than explode in the situation, he decided that he'd obviously get away. And he consulted with himself. I suppose that means he meditated on the issue, he sat down and he thought about a strategy to combat it. And we also know that Nehemiah was a man of prayer. So when he was consulting with himself, I'm sure that he was consulting with the Lord because there are 12 separate prayers in Nehemiah and this was a critical part of their project. Then the second thing that he did was to call a meeting and to get it out in the open, a place where it could be discussed. And the third thing he did was he challenged the offenders about what their actions were doing and why it was damaging their community so much. And he, his appeal had four different approaches, and I think 
These approaches are good approaches for us when we're talking about conflict, when we're trying to see how we work ourselves through a situation. So he appealed to them on the basis of love. He appealed to them on their love for their brothers. How could they sell their brothers and sisters? They were one. They were God's own people. He said, you were charging your own people interest. Now, this was a direct violation of God's commandment in Leviticus 25 that basically says that the Jewish people were meant to be a people that looked after each other and were then able to be a light to the Gentile nations. They were particularly forbidden from lending money at what we would say usury, high, high interest rates. Quite the contrary, they were told that they should look after the poor among them until the poor were able to repay. So they were living their lives completely contrary to what God intended. And even the New Testament gives us an account where uh, Paul, writing to, um, to the Galatians, he said, do good to all people, but especially to the household of God. In other words, we have an obligation in the way we look after each other in our own community. And that is based on love. So how are we going with an issue that we might be facing? Is our approach firstly based on love? And then secondly, he challenged them to see the big picture. What he says is, how can you sell your brothers and sisters that have been redeemed only for us to have to buy them back again and redeem them again? In other words, he's saying, can't you see? You are working against what is going on here. This is all about redemption. This is all about people's lives being transformed in a, good, in a good way and yet you, by your own actions, you are working against it. Can't you see the big picture? Can't you see the plan that God has? So often in disagreements, I'm sure we lose sight of where our disagreement is in the sight of God's ultimate plan for us. God's given us the ministry of reconciliation and, and uh, redemption. And like the people of Nehemiah's time, there is a direct correlation between our effectiveness in mission on God's behalf, partnering God in the world and the way we treat one another. If we really want to be effective in God's redemptive plan, we need to work together well. You and I um, want to do that. And so as we go through and, and look at those different issues in our life, what particular grievance am I having at the moment? How am I working through this in the light of God's redemptive uh, plan for mankind? And then he appealed to their morality. In verse 9 he said, what you are doing is not right. In other words, he said, get a conscience. Fear God. What you're doing doesn't even pass the pub test, let alone God's test. Even the not-yet-Christians would realise that profiting from those who are hurting and oppressed is a low act. And then he appealed to them on the basis of their witness. If Israel was to be a light to the nations and they treated each other like this, what were their enemies going to think? And Nehemiah spoke about what he referred to as the, uh, the uh, reproach of the Gentiles. We read that in verse 9. And so the Gentiles were looking at the way these Jews were treating each other and they just thought it was a joke. Are these really one people? 
Jesus' prayer in John 17:23 was that people would know God's heart of love when brothers and sisters in Christ are brought together in complete unity. And John wrote, By this everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. So there are the four different aspects of the way he challenged the rich nobles. But I think there are other aspects that come out for us in this passage as well. The first one is that uh, relational problems are inevitable. They are going to happen. These people were focused on a project. These people all uh, had one uh, common desire, that they would live together as Jewish people and reflect God. Nehemiah was leading them and leading them well. And yet out of all of that, there are, relation, there are relational issues. And so we know that is also the case. And we can't ignore those. We've got to work through that. It might be painful, um, but it's, we must not deny there are any relational issues. We need to face the conflict head on. Otherwise, it's going to take deep root and it's going to cause bitterness. And then Nehemiah shows us how we need to take that initiative. And it needs to be that we do take the initiative to restore relationships. So if we've been hurt, go and talk to the person about it. If you've hurt someone else, go and confess what we have done. As Jesus said in Matthew 5, and be willing to forgive because unforgiveness will sap our joy. In the Lord's Prayer, we pray, Our Father, forgive us as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. It's a strange paradox, isn't it, that, that part of the Lord's Prayer? Because uh, it's only in forgiving others that we will truly experience the forgiveness that God has for us in Jesus Christ. And then humility brings blessing. The rich nobles, when they were confronted by uh, Nehemiah's, Nehemiah about their actions, they humbled themselves. It's an amazingly quick turnaround from these these nobles that have been ripping off their fellow Jews. They simply said, we will give it back and we will not demand anything from them. We will do as you say. And their humility brought the blessing of seeing the work continue. What's our humility like as we deal through issues um, with one another? We know that passage in 2 Chronicles 7 well. It's one that we'll be focusing on, I'm sure, over this prayer weekend that comes up. If you humble yourselves and pray and seek my face and turn from your wicked ways, says Lord, I will hear, forgive and heal. It's a short paraphrase of what that passage is all about. But that's what it requires us to do, to humble ourselves and to pray and to seek God and to turn around from our wicked ways. And there's a part at the end of that passage of uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 7 towards the end that gives us a warning and basically says if we will not humble ourselves, if we walk contrary to God's plan, that we as followers of Jesus will become a byword, a byword um, and a, a word of uh, an object of ridicule uh, for those who pass by. And then the final thing I want us to concentrate on is that good leadership is essential for any group. The whole book of Nehemiah is a case study in effective and humble leadership. I mean, some have looked at Nehemiah and said, well, it's hardly a, go uh, hardly a humble book. When you read through it, it's all, I have done this, I have achieved this, 
And even when you get to the end of our passage today, remember me for what I have done, Lord. Um, you know, so some have looked at Nehemiah and criticised it and said, there's no humility there. But I think we need to remember that this book was probably Nehemiah's own diary notes. I don't even know if Nehemiah, Bible scholars don't know whether Nehemiah ever intended to have this printed. Because what seems to have happened is that Ezra took that. Ezra took his diary notes. Ezra chronicled the whole thing as Ezra wrote First and Second Chronicles. Ezra and then chronicled this affair with Nehemiah. And so I wouldn't be too hard on what appears to be his lack of humility. But in this chapter, his leadership and his self-sacrificing um, self nature is just so apparent, as well as his good planning. He was a man that was in the trenches with his workers. He wasn't one of those people that lorded it over, the, over everyone else and said, OK, go and do this, go and do this. He was there. He devoted himself to the building of the wall. As well as his uh, good planning, he was by their side encouraging, facilitating and directing. He knew that they needed to be free. And so he paid for their redemption from debt and from slavery. He committed his own funds to the project. Leaders of all persuasions uh, even in our world often develop an attitude of entitlement. And we see it in business and we see it in, uh, in our governments and sadly we can also see it in our churches. Nehemiah did not even take what he was entitled to. Over 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and they took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to the food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for work. We did not, we did not acquire any land because the demands were heavy on these people. It's a challenge for us, isn't it? Whatever our position is in life, whether that's just a, as a leading, as a mum or a dad in our families, as a school friend, as a leader, or in business or in government positions, might our leadership style be similar to that of Nehemiah? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for uh, this account of the way that uh, you worked uh, through a man and through other people that he engaged to, to make a difference in Jerusalem. And Father, we would confess here that we all want to make a difference in lives around us. Our lives, for many of us, have been changed by a relationship with Jesus Christ and you don't call us to sit down and to, and to simply um, yeah, worship that as though we've arrived. We have salvation in the name of Jesus, but we also have a mission through the call of Jesus on each of our lives. And Father, we want to do that well. And even as we've opened up this chapter, we recognise the challenges that come as we, uh, as we live and work with each other, as we interact with the outside world. And Father, we want, a people who, we want to be people who humble ourselves and seek you. 
And Father, ask that you would guide us, that you would grow us, grow us together. Uh, Father, grow us in, in opening our eyes to see how you want to use us in this world, in our own community. And Father, even now, we want to declare our need of you. And ask, Father, that you would empower each one of us uh, to be a wonderful witness for you. A wonderful witness to your love and a wonderful witness um, to your empowering of lives that do make a difference in this world. And so, Father, we give ourselves to you as we give you thanks. In Jesus' name. Amen.